I admire your um, endurance, is all I can say. Um, uh, I'm going to keep it as short as I possibly can. Uh, we have a nice, uh, smiling, friendly presence on the screen to um, cheer you all up. Um, and I'm going to um, start by um, following everyone else's lead and um, uh, treading some ground that's already been trodden by Sumati Ramaswamy. Um, okay, when asked what was the greatest photo she had missed taking, the photographer, Homai Virawala, responded in characteristic staccato. It was of Mahatma Gandhi's assassination. As on many previous occasions, she had special permission to attend the prayer meeting at Billa House on 30th January 1948. She took her camera and left her office, but after she went out of the gate, something cropped up, and she decided that she would go the next day instead. After all, as she recalled, she had photographed the Mahatma many times. Her decision would prove fateful. Within half an hour, news came of the assassination at the very spot where she habitually photographed Gandhi, and she realized that she had missed, quote, the one big chance for taking the biggest picture ever. In retrospect, she concluded it was destiny, a force that, quote, does strange things to people, that prevented her attendance that day and resulted as a later news story proclaimed in her missing the world's greatest news picture. Homai's misfortune is testimony to a former precondition of photography, the coincidence of event apparatus and camera person. Indeed, 10 years previously, in an address delivered on the occasion of photography's centenary, the poet and essayist Paul Valois had based a striking philosophy of history on the material prerequisites of photography, transforming an assumption about the concrete conditions of photography into a general model of the event, which would allow history to escape from what he called mere storytelling. Quote, the mere notion of photography, when we introduce it into our mediation, sorry, meditation on the genesis of historical knowledge, and its true value, he wrote, suggests this simple question. Could such and such a fact, as it is narrated, have been photographed? Photography, uh, Valerie argued, had transformed our expectation of history into a play of tangible shadows. History depended on language, but was essentially visual in its modality, he argued, involving what Anthony Pagden, in another context, would term autopticism, an eyewitnessing that authorised claims to truth. Since history, Valerie wrote, quote, can apprehend only sensible things being based on verbal testimony relayed through words, everything on which it grounds its affirmations can be broken down into things witnessed, into moments that were caught in quick takes, or could have been caught had a cameraman, some star news photographer, been on hand. What could be photographed is contrasted by Valerie with those things that, quote, originate in the mind and are consequently imaginary, mere constructions, interpretations, bodiless things by nature invisible 
to the photographic eye, inaudible to the phonographic ear, so that they could not have been observed and transmitted intact. Photography's relation to the event has now, at least in popular consciousness, changed. It is possible to make visible things that never happened. Valerie's reassuring, could such and such a fact, as it is narrated, have been photographed, might now be rephrased more anxiously, could such and such a fact, as it is narrated, have been photoshopped. Even on the precipice of World War II, Valerie was able to write that, quote, history is a narrative to which we apply what we will distinguish it from mere storytelling. The new media and technologies of our current age make such a declaration appear utopian. Fake history abounds. In Indonesia, earlier this year, Islamists claiming that voting for the incumbent Christian governor of Jakarta, Basuki Jahaja Purnama, known as Ahok, was haram. Ahok cited the Quran in his defense, but a cleverly edited video turned him into a blasphemer. He lost the election and is now awaiting a jail term. During the uh, 2017 UK general election, the most viewed political video featured Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn refusing to condemn the IRA. Seen by over 5 million people, the Conservative Party paid Facebook to insert a feed that they had edited in such a way as to invert Corbyn's response. In Kenya, fake news bulletins appearing to be CNN or BBC reports plagued the contested general election. Trump, the apostle of fake news who displays fake Time magazine covers featuring him at his golf resorts, has recently started a, quote, real news channel on Facebook. <laughs> it's a mad, mad world. Uh, in Bangladesh in 2013, mosque loudspeakers urged the faithful to gaze at the moon so that they might behold the paradolic face of the Jamaat leader and convicted war criminal Delwa Hussein Saidi, a vision already circulating on the internet. Paradolia, the tendency to see patterns where none exist, is strongly associated in psychological studies with predisposition to religious experience. These kinds of fake news can at least claim ideological integrity, no matter how warped. Much fake news is manufactured as clickbait by otherwise unemployed Macedonian teenagers. Like his contemporary Walter Benjamin, Valerie stressed the enormous transformation wrought by the first photographic revolution. Quote, man's way of seeing began to change, and even his way of living felt the repercussions of this novelty, which immediately passed from the laboratory into everyday use creating new needs and hitherto unimagined customs. For Valérie, 1939 was a centenary of decisive importance, for it marked a hundred years of living within <coughs> photographic vision. The question for us is whether the second photographic revolution, the era of code, of photography after the end of photography, which has made the presence of cameras and events optional, 
will produce equally <coughs> fundamental changes in our ways of seeing and our ways of living? Will it create new needs and as yet unimagined customs? In India too, images seem increasingly liberated from the events that Valerie described. Recent scandals uh, involving events that never took place, for which nevertheless photographs exist, include the case of two Maharashtrian police officers, now sacked, who claim to have ascended Everest. Dinesh and Tarakeshwari Rathor were dismissed for bringing the police into disrepute after Satya Roop Siddhanta from Bangalore noticed that the images were his, corrupted by the presence of the Rathors. <laughs> Politics especially appears increasingly a work of the imagination. Inconvenient monuments can be recoded or deleted, and what does not yet exist can be conjured on Photoshop. P.N. Oak and others have for long argued through the medium of print that the Taj Mahal was really a Shiv temple. But Photoshop allows the public to actually see the conversion work observed by Tavernier and coats old theories with a compelling new glossiness. Prime Minister Modi is not so much made in India, but rather, as one excellent internet meme suggests, made by Photoshop. Elected by Photoshop power, images detached from the event have played a significant role in government and party publicity. We should expect as much from a party that has consistently mobilised new media in its national and local campaigns. In 2004, the BJP's India Shining campaign marked a new spectacularization of politics, a new kind of politics fought at the level of the image, albeit one which was defeated by a brilliant counter-image strategy by Congress. Uh, the 2014 election uh, has been characterized by further shininess. And in 2012, Musion, the London-based company whose eyeliner system resurrected Frank Sinatra so that he could perform at Simon Cowell's birthday party <laughs> and Tupac Shakur to perform at Coachella, worked with Modi to develop the Pepper's ghost illusion to create a holographic effect. It's technically speaking not a hologram, no. Um, allowing Modi to reach remote rural audiences, sometimes at more than 50 locations simultaneously. In 2014, the same technology deployed by 200 Musion installation crews was used to project Modi virtually at between three and a half to 4,000 holographic events, many using Musion's mobile shipping containers to reach villages lacking electricity. Photoshop's appeal is obvious. It extends the prophetic potential of photography perfecting its proleptic or future-delivering capability. A government merely has to desire bullet trains for images of them to materialize magically before us. It merely has to imagine a future underbud for it to unfurl tangibly in front of our eyes. A new and enchanted world opens up. 
were Valerie alive, he probably wouldn't know whether to laugh or cry. But we can safely assume that he would think this is a betrayal of a photographic way of seeing in which consciousness was likened to the materialization of the print in the developing trade. But if he did cry, we might conclude that this is what we would expect of a writer positioned within European literary culture. True, Valéry perceptively highlighted the crucial role played by the, quote, deceptive properties of vision, but these are for him counterfactuals on the road to certainty. Quote, what would become of philosophy if it did not have the means of questioning appearances, he asked, if we are not forced to confront mirages, refraction, and illusion? A more culturally alert diagnosis might soften the seeming newness of the Photoshop effect. India's Photoshop version of history certainly stands in sharp contrast to uh, Valerie's vision, but it seems to closely echo an earlier tradition of what David Shulman calls mind-born worlds, the empowerment of the imagination that reached a crescendo in South India in the 16th century. He opens his book, More Than Real, with an account from medieval South India of a devotee who builds a temple in his mind, proving, as Shulman writes, that, quote, it is clearly possible to think a monument into existence and even to impart an existential priority to this entirely imagined entity. Shulman also sheds light on India shining and the BJP demographic and the way in which new elites have always sought new ratios between events and codes, between experience and imagination. Shulman argued that a newly empowered South Indian imagination reflected pressures from Nayakas and a, quote, cash-oriented economy with its new opportunities for self-made men free from ascriptive determination. Uh, if we also had time, I would uh, include here also in this kind of prehistory of the imagination uh, Anuradha Kapoor's comments on um, the impact of chromolithography, the way in which its tangibility and realism made the time of the gods our time. She talks about a kind of invasion of the divine into the everyday through these new modes of picturing. Um, and there would be lots of um, vernacular photographic practices, some of which we'll come back to in a moment, uh, which would also allow us to, say, to, to sustain this blurring of this sense of the uh, absolute radical and dangerous newness of Photoshop. In a similar manner, the history of photography in India, and I assume that this is true for the history of photography anywhere, complicates Valerie's straightforward timeline of the triumph of a photographable history. Images from this perspective have always had a troubled relationship to historical evidence. Felice Biar... All oh, right, OK, I was uh, out of sync a bit. I was going to talk more about um, uh, the impact of Photoshop on small-town photo studios, but we'll come back to that later. Um, Felice Beato's attempts to photographically recreate events in the 1857 insurrection, which had all occurred before he, before he arrived with his camera, are perhaps too well known to need discussion. 
But let us take just one example of Hindu nationalism's earlier entanglement with the visual and consider an image by the Russian painter Vasily Vereshchagin, which the Hindu nationalist theorist V.D. Uh, v. Sarvakar reproduced, correctly attributed to Vereshchagin, as showing, quote, Indian revolutionaries being blown from the mouth of guns in his account of the 1857 uprising, the first Indian war of independence. Many rebels were executed in this fashion, but Sarokar was wrong to attach it to 1857. In fact, Veris Chagin, who was in India 1876 to 77, painted 49 Namdari Sikhs being executed in Ludhiana following anti-cow slaughter disturbances. Eventually, the image would attain a photographic status. The source of this transformation is most probably a 1941 Nazi propaganda leaflet, Rabstadt England, Robber State England, which reproduced the image as part of its anti-British colonial litany with the caption, quote, this Nine, this 1857 photograph was published in 1939 by the English newspaper Picture Post. It shows the methods used to suppress the Sepoy Rebellion. This painting of events in 1872 now circulates widely as a photograph of events in 1857. It's uh, all over the web as photographic evidence of 1857. The study of analogue photography in India also suggests a deep concern with the future. The products of small town studios of the kind I've studied over several decades are strikingly subjunctive, concerned with what Karen Strassler in an Indonesian context describes as the as-if. Photography's peculiar power, as many small town inhabitants have discovered, is to turn the as-if into the proleptic. A significant part of the appeal of the studio system has been its opening of the future into the present. Anthropologists have lived under the cloud of Bourdieu's theorization of 1960s French vernacular photographic practices. His endless tautologies about the solemnization of the past bear very little relation to the futuristic obsessions of small-town India. Images made in Suag studio in Nagda in Madhya Pradesh in the late 1970s may now seem to invite a backward glance at a past that seems irretrievably lost. But in fact, most of the images speak in prophetic mode to a future which is yet to be. There are young men with phones because phones could only be easily found in photographic studios. Suag's customers pose wistfully, listening carefully to an interlocutor who is not yet there. They are speaking to the future. The distant utopia of consumer durables and technologies of connectivity <coughs> makes its appearance through other means, such as the radio, literally physically fusing two male friends, but like the phones in the earlier images, pointing to a distant future horizon. So other montages and multiple printed images disturb what E.H. Gombrich termed the eyewitness principle in ways that would also trouble Valerie. Um, so this is Suag Studio on the left, uh, double exposure. Uh, and on the right, a recently uh, discovered um, um, five-part 
exposure um, from a, a studio, a new golden digital studio in Bhaktapur in, uh, in Kathmandu Valley, uh, product of my uh, uh, current and ongoing research in Nepal. It may be tempting in the light of the evidence so far reviewed to think that photography is dead in the age of photography after the end of photography. <laughs> but I want to suggest that that is not the case. If a review of history before Photoshop suggests that the issues it raises are not in any fundamental manner unprecedented, a consideration of photography after Photoshop will allow us to see how photography still endures, albeit in ghostly and tattered forms, after the end of photography. Valois's vision of a photographable history finds a strong echo in Georges Didi Huberman's brilliant uh, book, Images in Spite of All. The focus of Didi Huberman's text are four photographs the only photographs indeed out of the one and a half million surviving photographs of Nazi concentration camps which show the actual process of mass killing. The images exemplifying what Arendt calls instance of truth were snatched, Didi Uberman says, from hell by the Sonderkommando in Auschwitz and destined for the Polish resistance in Krakow. The images, witnesses, are snatched from the real, he says, in conditions of barely imaginable extremity and testify to the phenomenological conditions of their making. Quote, everything that made them an event. They are, as Didi Uberman memorably writes, quote, shreds of which we are now trustees, charged with sustaining them simply by looking at them. Images in spite of all, in spite of the hell of Auschwitz, in spite of the risks taken. In return, we must contemplate them, take them on, and try to comprehend them. Didi Ubermann shows us the necessity of rescuing the image of an event, images of the real, which, I quote again, suddenly appeared, and he memorably extracts a material phenomenology of the event from the surface parallaxes of the images. Didi Uberman focuses on the elementary physics of analog photography, using depth cues and perspectival force lines to situate a terrorized cameraman as he, as, as he he's assumed to be a Greek Jew called Alex, cowers within the dark room of Crematorium 5, trying to snatch evidence with his camera. We can sense Alex becoming slightly bolder as he takes a second slightly closer and more frontal image, quote, the slant and darkness allow us as viewers to assume Alex's shifting, anxious movements. His fear seems to have abated somewhat, allowing him to snatch an image in one of the quick takes that Valéry extolled. Alex's final two photographs reveal that he has to hide the camera. He turns right and right again around the crematorium and heads towards the birch copse, which was visible in the earlier two photographs. As Didi Uberman puts it, quote, the hell continues. A convoy of women already undressed gets ready to enter the gas chamber. The SS are about. It is simply not possible to take out the camera, even less possible to aim it. Didi Uberman presents us with an account not only of the camera's ability to gather evidence, 
but also inevitably to record its own physics and phenomenology. Didi Uberman urges us not to ask, quote, too little of these images by relegating them to the sphere of the simulacrum and thereby excluding them from the historical field as such. Uberman insists that the Auschwitz photographs not be severed, quote, from their phenomenology, from their specificity, and from their very substance. His insistence on situating the images within the physical and material universe of their making and insisting on the truth of the images is done in the cause of making the concentra concentration camp system showable. Didi Uberman provides an unforgettable reconstruction of events through, through the phenomenological evidence embedded in these analog traces. And again, if I had uh, time, I would want to try and apply some of those insights to Ram Rahman's um, Goldberg Society Massacre series, uh, uh, portraits of survivors uh, reinstalled uh, each uh, annual commemoration uh, in the site of the buildings uh, in which so many of their uh, relatives died. Uh, Didi Uberman provides a, a pure a kind of pure account of analog materiality and phenomenology. The question is, what if anything of this endures after the end of photography? One account might emphasize the dissolution of truth as the empirical world of the analog image gives way to the simulacrum of the digital. But another might stress the surprising resilience of contingency. Tatiana Tolstoya once noted how even the most talented Stalinist photo doctors were unable to completely erase the subtle shadows and indentations left among their comrades in group photographs which had earlier featured Trotsky or his associates. Commissioners, sorry, commissars were made to vanish but frequently left a residue in the exorbitance of the photographic image. <coughs> It might be objected that such ghostly residues, which we might see as evidence of the, what we could call the material contract of photography, reflect the analogue nature of the original images, and that the digital completely frees the event from contingency and exorbitance. However, Jana Sepanen has shown in a consideration of images produced by NASA's Mars mission how the indexical tenaciously endures within the digital. In 2012, the rover Curiosity transmitted images over the variable 60 to 400 million kilometers separating Mars from Earth. Transmission usually took about 20 minutes, during which time the image existed as, quote, a modulated, as, quote, modulated electromagnetic radiation which nevertheless, Sepanen argues, remains a material trace caused by photons reflected and or emitted by the photographed objects. <coughs> Framed in this fashion, we might note how unreliable Photoshop is as an ally in one's visual regime, often because it is still partly enslaved by photons that reflect the phenomenology of picture-making so powerfully documented by Didi Uberman. You can, as India Today put it, show too much Photoshop love, i.e. it can go wrong. Code, in other words, can self-destruct. As Homi Baba might put it, performance usually leads to deformance. 
We owe the most striking examples of this to the Chinese government, many of whose images are difficult to explain. Certainly the most bizarre, presumably the result of overwork in the office of the Municipal Civil Affairs Department in Ningyu, recorded officials in Anhui province in 2013 looming over a miniaturized senior citizen in what appears to be a still from a horror movie. <laughs> this particular mishap in the code was the result of the pragmatics of the event in a manner that would reassure both Didi Ubermann and Vare. The provincial government explained that, quote, the layout of the room in which Cheng Yanchung, a female centenarian being fated by officials, was pictured, quote, had prevented the photographer from capturing her and the officials in the same image. <laughs> Cheng was sitting on a chair on the balcony under the sun, a repentant official explained. The balcony space was very small and the camera lens could not cover the whole scene. When the employee of the Municipal Civil Affairs Department uploaded the photos, he simply merged the two shots. What was a failure in terms of state propaganda was a huge success in terms of facilitating critique. One social media commentator astutely noted that the image, quote, truly portrays the social ecology. The image of officials is glorious. The people are small and humble. What a good bit of Photoshop. Others suggested that the officials must have been looking at real estate or scantily clad women because of their enthusiastic expressions. <laughs> Two years earlier, in Huili, southwest China, another group of officials appeared in a government-issued publicity photograph. They were inspecting a new road in a manner that would have surely provoked skepticism in Paul Valley. <laughs> Predictably, the image unleashed a torrent of critical defamations in which the hapless officials made small steps on the moon, <laughs> walked with dinosaurs, and found themselves accompanied in their inspection by the then North Korean leader Kim Jong-il. A similar deficiency in the original physics of the event underlies some self-inflicted Indian Photoshop wounds. What has become known as the window wonder, purporting to show Modi gazing with concern at the 2015 Chennai floods, was issued by the Press Information Bureau, presumably either because the original image showed a rural landscape thought to be too indistinct, or because a more urban landscape was deemed to better fit the potential BJP vote demographic. Like the Chinese examples, the image says a lot about visual literacy and acculturation. What may have seemed immediately highly implausible to some viewers clearly persuaded their makers that such mind-born worlds could pass the Valery test. But most Indian Photoshop-friendly fire has been NGIs, non-governmental images, created by Modi and BJP supporters, showing too much love. In 2014, the BJP's Priti Gandhi circulated an endorsement from WikiLeaks Julian Assange, an alliance that was immediately counted on the internet. Another image caught a young, humble Modi sweeping the floor during a 1988 RSS rally in Gujarat. BJP supporters' mind-born worlds pictured an om om omnipresent Modi. Obama watched his speeches on television. 
exited Air Force One with him and strolled past the Rose Garden. <laughs> the reclusive Yashoda Ben, the dangerous threat to Modi's Brahmacharya, interrupted her simple life of prayer and got to meet Barak and Michelle. The pharmacon quality of these images opened the way for some brilliant satires that showed the real object of Modi's attention in Chennai. Beach babes, as uh, suggested here. And the real state of present-day urban Varanasi as a hybrid Fritz Lang Nitin Gadkari fantasy, complete with overhead monorail transport. One very learned CPS satire consciously invoked John Hartfield's anti-Nazi AIZ montages of the 1930s. In particular, his 1932 Adolf as Superman, he swallows gold and spits out tin plate. I've tried to suggest that the new photoshopped India can never be a purely mind-born world. 16th century South India, as described by David Shulman, while providing fascinating parallels, does not anticipate every aspect of the present. The digital aspires to a utopian, frictionless zone of immateriality, but remains subject to material constraints, such as the electricity needed to power service, servers, and to scrape against what we might think of as analog grit. Consider the current cow protection agitation, a political movement which we've heard about from Kudgeri, among others, which depends on digital images and an immaterial construct of the cow as sacred mother. I've been eager on recent India trips to find out how this image war was being conducted. Cow protection has been an intermittent part of the Indian political landscape since the 1890s, when it was mobilized by higher caste Hindus against Muslims and also lower caste beef-eating Hindus. When I arrived in central India in mid-October 2015, I asked Beru, a railway station coolie, whether he had seen any new cow protection imagery. He told me he'd just received a WhatsApp video that purported to show two cows being slaughtered outside a mosque in Pakistan. We went to my lodging house and I photographed the video as Beru held his phone. I just read about the consequence of the circulation of such imagery. In late September 2015, in the village of Bisara, not far from Delhi, a furious mob of a thousand high-caste Hindus surged down a tiny alleyway towards the home of Muhammad Akhlaq. They believed that he had slaughtered and eaten a cow, and so they killed him. His body was dumped next to the cow's entrails. This killing, which has been followed by many since, uh, was one symptom, symptom of a resurgence of anti-cow slaughter sentiment directly mobilised by the present Indian government. The ideal of abstention and cow protection becomes the alibi for participating in violence against beef eaters, and the protection of the cow mother becomes the rationale for the destruction of those who refuse to participate in this ideological project. Later, a Jane friend would share a WhatsApp-circulated image of a three-headed calf, evidence of divine resistance. I also made a point of collecting cow-related commercially produced images, all now produced on Photoshop, and sensed a ratcheting up 
of what might be termed cow erotics, including images in which milk appears as a kind of semen. This theme in commercial chromolithography, which presents two-dimensional images, builds upon folk practices in which the generative potential of kia, a milk-based rice dish, is mixed into cow dung during the annual Goadan puja in highly sensory and material practices. This intertwining of the digital and the analog, the immaterial and the material, got me thinking about what one might call the political economy of beef. Deshi female cattle usually live 20 to 22 years. They can get pregnant after their third year and hence can give milk usually for eight to 12 months from their fourth year. Post-reproductive cows cease to produce milk, usually from age 15 onwards, and then have to be maintained as a cost on resources or released. Banjara is a powerful scheduled tribe community within the village that I habitually work in in Madhya Pradesh, perform regular twice-yearly marriages between old cows and male calves. They circumambulate the fera, the marriage fire at the heart of the rite, outside the Ram temple, before being set free to roam the jungle, or more likely, the nearby town. We might see this as an ideological cloak that obscures the fact that most older cattle are surreptitiously sent for slaughter, for villagers can't afford to sustain them when non-productive. <laughs> Digital circulation seems to open an unlimited world of plenitude, one lacking in material constraints. Gomez, Cruz and Mayer note that, quote, giving away a photograph is no longer a subtractive <coughs> process, but an additive one, an additive one. Sharing as flow, hence entails amplification. I think what they're saying about the changing modes of um, circulation are very important. WhatsApp and YouTube serve as broadcast channels whose width contrasts with that of the, with that of the strange confined space, to recall Mary Price, of the analog photograph. The additive rather than subtractive dimension of social networking has been theorized by Rubenstein and Sluice in terms of sensual plenitude. Quote, proliferation and abundance in the context of the app store, Facebook timeline, or Twitter stream mean that it becomes misleading to talk about the photographic frame or the singular image, for the image is everywhere at once, accessible from any point in the network, establishing a regime of intoxication and plenitude through its rapid multiplication and profusion. Not a frame or a confined space, but a rolling frontier of superabundance. But is it, is it a frontier that magically escapes the constraints of materiality? Gosuruksha, cow protection, has representational effects in the non-virtual world, as Mohammed Akhlaq and many others have learned to their cost, just as conventional critical theory would lead us to believe. But in this case, there is a prismatic ideological inversion, an inversion through which the apparent weightlessness of information distorts the tonnage of the real. As Marx and Engels wrote in the German ideology, quote, if in all ideology men and their circumstances appear upside down as in a camera obscura, this is an organic process in class society which arises just as much from historical life process 
as the inversion of objects on the retina does from physical life process. What Descartes observed of the retinal image and what Marx and Engels observed of ideology, I'm suggesting, is true of digital cows in distress. Digital weightlessness permits the implementation of what in the inverted material world is a highly damaging course of action. Indeed, the costs of digital cows are rather like the price of the digital itself, no longer calculated as a cost per image, as in the days of film reels, but phantasmatically free, the actual costs offshored in server energy consumption. Likewise, cows are phantasmatically saved, released from slaughter, but actually destined for a life of semi-starvation that may well crash the rural economy. The weightlessness of information and of the digital image is commonly taken as an affirmation of the digital conceptualized as the end point of materialization. But as Seppanen puts it, in I think a significant and important argument, quote, in terms of materiality, digitization is to say the least an ambiguous process. The NASA images transmitted from Mars discussed by Seppanen possess, quote, no sensible qualities like size, color, weight, or spatiality, yet they are the product of the materiality of electromagnetic radiation. The digital, Seppanen observes, involves a break from the continuous signal of the analog to the binary discontinuous code of the digital, but nevertheless, both signals are physical phenomena, inviting no clear distinction between materiality and immateriality. The digital, Sapanen rightly argues, is material to the core. Now, I recently published a short discussion of the global orientalist iconography used to advertise Liebig's flesh extract from the 1860s onwards. And I had no idea that this might describe a perfectly inverse trajectory to the one that I've been wrestling with here. Liebig's aesthetic, produced to market industrially rendered flesh, is seared by the archaic, the colourful, and the mysterious. So let's say Liebig invents this process. It, it eventually um, results in Frey Bentos steak and kidney pies being produced in Uruguay and Argentina. Um, uh, we'll hear a little bit more about it in a moment. Um, so everything in the Liebig imagination, here I'm talking about the trade cards that we're going to see a few of here that were issued alongside this industrially produced meat extract, this rendered beef paste. Uh, it's the kind of uh, the worst nightmare of cow protectionists. Um, everything in the Liebig imagination is intense, excessive and heightened. All of this serves to locate the images promulgated by the company is situated or embedded in very particular times and places. This embeddedness, embeddedness perfectly suited the needs of a transnational company trading in rendered meat. The company's product was a paste made from cattle, a dematerialized transformation of living meat into a molasses-like spread sold in clinical white glass bottles produced by a company spanning half the world. This extract, the product of enormously extended supply chains, 
was the very model of deterritorialized fluidity and dematerialized convertibility, something curiously akin to the rolling digital frontier of WhatsApp. The Liebig aesthetic made possible an embedding through exoticization. It anchored a global commodity, placeless and formless, in a world of hyperplace and hypertime, positioning it in a non-fluid, essentially static world of ultra-traditional and heavily material identities. Liebig's upside-down ideology transformed beef extract into hyper-materialized Arcadian landscapes. Contemporary digital cow protection's upside-down ideology turns the material costs of aging non-productive cattle into a seemingly weightless moral choice. This weightless superabundance feeds an impossibly non-material vision of the moral benefits of cow protection, one which violently feeds into and disturbs the complicated and pragmatic ground, I'm tempted to say analog ground, where actual cattle live. A parallel entanglement, this is my conclusion, a parallel entanglement of image, place, and nation can also be seen in the projection of a digital India. Just as in politics, as we have seen, there can be too much Photoshop love with unpredictable effects. So here we encounter the problem of what we might call the pixelated nation. One of Benedict Anderson's insights was to see how the map as logo though born of a desire to triangulate location within cartographic space, also appeared, quote, like a detachable piece of a jigsaw puzzle. Each piece, he continued, could be wholly detached from its geographic context. The particularity of blood and soil, desh, rashtra, and so on, found itself in tension with reproducibility and displaceability. India as a geobody so well documented by Sumati Ramaswamy and the homunculistic populating of the logo with sacred personages and deities was one way of mediating this tension. One of the most striking visual displacements and replacements is to be found in Patrick Lacey's 1946 Fascist India, a short book which detailed what he saw as Congress Party despotism and made the case for Pakistan. The back end paper presents a deep black outline of the Indian subcontinent superimposed on a map of Europe. This dramatically emphasizes the scale of the subcontinent and places Baluchistan over almost all of Scotland and Calcutta to the south of Moscow. But it's the front end paper that is more interesting for our current purposes. It presents India showing European states superimposed. This surreal image squeezes European nations into the confines of the subcontinent. Spain covers much of what is now Uttar Pradesh. A rotated Great Britain stretches across large swathes of what is now Maharashtra. Romania covers much of the south and Switzerland nestles at the southern tip, occupying part of what is now Tamil Nadu and Kerala. Lacey offers a perfect experiment in what can be done with the map as logo and the detachable pieces of a jigsaw. So his, his experiment in estrangement and deterritorialization produces something akin to pixelated territory. 
The legacy of partition was at least the clarity of a border, a semiotic place of being and otherness, a decisive utopia where nothing was blurred or ambiguous. A Home Ministry report in June 2017 documented the floodlighting of 647 kilometers of border um, sections between India and Pakistan and India and Bangladesh to prevent, quote, immigrants and terrorists infiltrating Indian territory. Apparently, the floodlighting had been completed in a year, and it was planned to upgrade the lighting to LED for even greater clarity. The Home Ministry illustrated its account with a reassuring image depicting Indian lights cutting through the soft folds of undulating hills, suggesting that infiltration would indeed be a difficult task. But as it happened, those dusky hills lay along the Morocco-Spanish border, and the image was the work of the Spanish photographer Javier Moyano. Quote, if it's a mistake by the ministry, we'll apologise, said Secretary Rajiv Maharishi. This is where the rolling frontier of the digital meets the analogue world of national borders and crashes. In these symbolically charged zones, the image needs to depict the correct place and event. It needs to meet the Valerie criteria. There's a long history of this rhizomatic transposability. Think of uh, William Jones' comments on first seeing India, for instance. And there was a per pervasive trope that India's uniqueness lay in its realisation of a vision which had always already been seen in some previous form. But the photograph in its additive plenitude here presents a danger of subverting a nationalist demand for the particularity and specificity of place. The political imagination in India has undoubtedly found powerful tools in digital imaging and Photoshop. Aspiration certainly makes claims to be more than real, but mind-born worlds can only ever be aspirational projects doomed to bump up against the real. We have seen how photography after the end of photography is in the end still measured against standards that Valerie would have recognized. The analog camera image remains as a ghostly presence in our thinking about history and the nation. Code can never fully eradicate or supersede the event. This should be cause for some little dark hope. Thank you.